wanna be something more than we are. Between the lies, podcast. Girl who should have been a star. Insecure about Let's herself. Go, she dreamed from afar. Always ridiculed, so she barely eating at all. Figuring at this point it might yeah. be better to call. Okay. In a day, she's so sick of falling in line. Dad wasn't around. Only father was time. Between the lies, I'm like, but she dream of a lifeline. Numbing the pain with whatever is in sight. Finding that she crave attention. And welcome back to the Between the Lies podcast, where we aim to find the truth in whatever wicked or warped subject we find our way into. And I'm proud to be able to bring you this podcast again and just get the ball rolling with a topic that everybody in some way, shape, or form has some type of interest in, at least in my opinion. Today, we're going to deep dive into the murder of John Benet Ramsey. Now, those of us who don't know, John Benet Ramsey was a six year old in Boulder, Colorado, who was well known in her town because she was involved in pageants events galore um sort of like a local celebrity her mother patsy was the one who had her involved in these pageants reportedly living vicariously through her daughter her father john ramsey was with a company called access graphics they would later go on to merge with lockheed martin she also had brother burke who was nine years old at the time as well as a few stepbrothers and sisters that we'll get into later in the story now, this all began on December 26th at around 5.52 a.m. Police received a 911 call from Patsy Ramsey, again, John Benet's mother, around 5.52. So let's hear the audio of that, um, kind of digest it, and then we can kind of dive into the details. 
1996. That's right, Christmas. Now, everything reportedly was fine on Christmas. John Bonet and Burke woke up to many gifts, etc. John Bonet had received a bike. Later on, they would attend a family friend's Christmas party, Fleet White. The family would return, and reportedly everyone would go to sleep, no problem. And then it leads us to the next morning. So 5.30 or so in the morning, Patsy Ramsey gets up to make a coffee and discovers a two-and-a-half-page handwritten ransom note on the back stairs leading to the kitchen. Now, I would like to read this ransom note out loud, and this is something that we can circle back to as we find out more about the case. But at the end of the day, when it comes to evidence in this case, I've heard multiple police officers as well as homicide detectives all say the same thing. This note is the basis of the case. This note is extremely peculiar, and I just can't wait to read it to you. So here we go. It goes, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want to see her in 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size bag to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier delivery of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anybody about your situation, such as police, FBI etc. will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert banking authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not only, I'm sorry, you are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. And at the end it says victory. S as in Sam, B as in Bertha, T as in Tyler, C as in cat. S-B-T-C. So there's a lot to digest in that ransom note, but I think the first thing to analyze from the ransom note is the length of it in general. It's definitely lengthy in nature, as well as implicates a foreign group being responsible for the kidnapping. Now, if you read the note, you will see a lot of the telltale signs that a person or persons writing this were American-based. Now, they use certain phrases and speak in a way that I would lean towards an American speaker writing the note. Secondly, to open the note, they say, we are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. This wouldn't make any sense for a ransom note because it downplays the power of said kidnappers. Someone writing an actual ransom note would want to be perceived as more powerful, at least in my opinion. Most ransom notes also that I've read before are short and sweet and to the point, at least more so than this one for sure. 
Now, this seemed highly dragged out and like somebody in a state of panic wrote it. Way too much information to be something that was written quickly. Now, handwriting experts have compared the note to Patsy Ramsey's handwriting for years, and although they admit there are similarities, they could not come to any type of definitive conclusion. But then you add on the fact that there were multiple rough drafts of the ransom note later found in the Ramsey home. I mean, what supposed kidnapper takes the time to write a three-page ransom note, let alone multiple rough drafts, and makes itself at home? Now, police would go on to arrive at the scene around 6 a.m., but they failed to close off the scene in any capacity. Family friends of the Ramseys and family came in droves to comfort them, completely destroying whatever semblance of evidence may have been left behind. Now, you have to ask yourself, how is it that a police department fails to secure such a high-profile kidnapping scene? One of the many balls dropped during this case, in my and a lot of other people's opinions. Now, there was an apparent search of the house conducted in the beginning by police. It's reported that the basement was searched, but the actual room where John Bonet would be ending up found was completely overlooked. Fleet White was among the group at the Ramsey home. You might remember that he hosted a Christmas party the night before and was a close friend and conglomerate of John Ramsey. Seven to eight hours go by in the Ramsey home, still without police closing the scene. Now, sometime in the early afternoon, a female investigator, her name being Linda Arndt, she pulls John Ramsey and Fleet White aside. Instead of having her team search the house, she urges them to start from the top of the house to the bottom of the house just to double-check the surroundings. John Ramsey and Fleet White head straight for the basement, straight into the room where John Bonet's body lay. John Ramsey puts a blanket over his daughter and carries her up the stairs and put her on display for everyone to see. Now, I'm no behavioralist at all, but if you found your daughter laying in the basement, lying lifeless, I would think that you would scream for help rather than put a blanket over her and bring her up the stairs for everyone to see. But that's just me. Now, I guess what I'm pointing out is his response almost seemed deliberate. He took duct tape off her mouth, he put a blanket over her, and then he ran her upstairs to put her in a scene where multiple people had been throughout the day. He had to know it would be contaminated. You can argue that his response to trauma is different than my response to trauma or yours or anybody else's. But at the end of the day, to me, it does seem deliberate, almost like he was going through the motions rather than properly reacting. But that's just me. So on December 31st, 1996, John Bonet was buried in Marietta, Georgia, which is the Ramsey's hometown. She was buried next to her half-sister, who was killed in a car crash in 1992, which we will also go into because it's pretty peculiar for any person, just statistics-wise, to go through two horrible tragedies like this. You, you can imagine one for some people, but if you looked at the statistics for how many people lose two kids in such dramatic fashion, I guarantee you they would be low. So fast forward to March 13th, 1997. It was announced that retired Colorado Springs police detective Lou Smith will join the Boulder team working on the case. Now, Lou was a highly important figure in this story. He actually investigated the case until the day that he died. On his deathbed, he passed it on to his family to investigate, and they're actually continuing to investigate it. And that's a whole nother sect to the story. Now, back to that ransom note. I think it's important to point out that this note had been conjured up without a single tool from the outside world. The paper came from John's desk, as well as the pen was the Ramsey's, and the same as the other papers they had found, which were apparent 
rough drafts. Now, I mentioned earlier that handwriting experts could never fully pin the handwriting to Patsy, and that may be true, but there are also reports of the handwriting of Patsy Ramsey changing post-1996. That, for one, and that some of the phrases that were used throughout the note that kind of stuck with me. Now, the one that most stuck with me was toward the end of the note. They say, don't grow a brain, John. Now, this stuck with me because after watching literal hours upon hours of interviews from the Ramseys this past week, it just feels like something Patsy would say. Just kind of represents her in a nutshell and her type of speaking tone and personality. Again, these are all completely opinion, and these are allegations. None of these have been proven in a court of law. I'm simply reporting the gathered evidence and giving you guys my personal feedback. Speaking of the Ramsey interviews, I found these also very peculiar. Now, for one, in an interview they did in 2000 with the TV legend Barbara Walters, rest in peace, who is just amazing in all things, and I love her, John has asked point-blank what he saw when he walked down in the basement. I'm going to play a clip of that, and then we can digest it and react to that. So here that is. I knew instantly, instantly what I'd found. I'd found my daughter. And what did you see? I saw her lying on the floor with a white blanket. She was lying on a white blanket. Uh, her hands were tied above her head. She had tape over her mouth. Her eyes were closed. I. Wow, just wow. So my initial reaction to that is it's jarring for me. It was years after the fact that they did this interview, but still, a father who had found his younger daughter in a basement, tied up, murdered, and sexually assaulted, is then going to go on Barbara Walters and recount exactly what he found with a straight face. Not a tear, not a tear in his eye. At the end, he does sigh, which is also a way that people make themselves sound upset. So there's that. Again, this is all my opinion. It was just a little bit jarring that somebody could recount something such as that without even wincing. I mean, it is just crazy to me. So this brings me to another interview the Ramseys did. They went on Larry King Live to debate with former police detective of the Boulder, Colorado Police Department, Stephen Thomas. A lot of the comments coincide with my beliefs. It just seems like in this interview, the Ramseys are a bit defensive and almost like they're coached by lawyers to say or not say certain things. Now, this Next part is a fact. It took them four months to formally meet with investigators. They met with lawyers, friends, family, friends, everything under the sun. But it took them four actual months to meet with Boulder police. Now, isn't that peculiar? Now, I'm going to play a couple clips that stuck out to me in this interview, and then we'll react and play another one. But just the fact that they go on Larry King Live to debate with somebody about their daughter that was murdered, I wouldn't want to go on TV and debate with anybody. I would want to go to the police station and work with the police and do everything I could to find the murder of my daughter. But again, that's just me. They have never been convicted in a court of law. The DNA completely clears them, which is something we'll get into later. But you're going to hear a little bit of this snippet. It's Stephen Thomas, the retired investigator, as I said on Larry King Live, sitting opposite the Ramseys, and let's play the clip. I think it's very, I think it's very simple. And we'll get their theory. I want your theory. What's your theory? My theory is quite simple. Whoever authored the ransom note killed the child, absent some great conspiracy uh, that they think uh, uh, this intruder came into the house. Oh, would uh, you agree that whoever authored the ransom note probably killed the child? I would agree. 100%. I would agree with that. Okay, now, your contention is she wrote the note. 
I do. What do you base that on? I do. I base that on question document examiners. Uh, so Stephen Thomas would then go on to state that Patsy Ramsey's handwriting had changed post-1996, which would make sense if she was the one who authored the note. Stephen Thomas would further go into detail in both of his theories that he had against the Ramseys. Either John Ramsey had killed John Bonet or Patsy Ramsey had killed John Bonet, and they both helped the other cover it up. Here's some of the Ramsey's reactions, which really stuck with me. Here we go. I totally agree that whoever, whoever wrote this ransom note killed our daughter. Yes, I concur wholeheartedly. Now, he believes you now, wrote the note. Now, let's hear, what I want to hear is, how is it exactly that you think that I killed my daughter? What's the I just cannot understand that. I want to hear it from start to finish. Wow. So what stuck out with me on that clip is that Patsy Ramsey is extremely snarky and matter of fact. They're doing this interview supposedly to clear their name and let people know that they're still looking for the murder of their daughter. But instead of working with the police officers and the homicide detectives, etc., they come on Larry King to do it in a public forum. They had asked John multiple times during the interview if he would take a lie detector test, in which he responded he would only do it through his experts, who were the best experts in the country. Now, we know that the Ramseys were a very wealthy family, and we also know when you're a wealthy family, you can buy certain things. It is extremely, extremely shady to me that he only wants his independent investigators. They haven't really worked with police, only doing so on specific grounds and terms. And again, I'd like to make it clear that I'm not accusing them of anything. I'm simply gathering the evidence in front of me from interviews and reacting to their behavior, in my opinion. They've never been convicted and they're therefore innocent until proven guilty as we all are in America. Now back to the appearance on Larry King. The Ramseys would state that they did work side by side with police in the days following John Bonet's murder. Stephen Thomas would fire back with his version of events. He had been working those days and they hadn't been willing to meet with investigators for nearly four months. The Ramseys would stay on the defensive throughout the entirety of the interview. Here's another snippet that stuck with me. Now, you'll hear a younger man's voice in the video. That would be former detective Stephen Thomas, who investigated the case. And he starts actually asking about the garrote that was found with John Bonet. So let's hear that. Happened in that bathroom. What would lead then to garroting and hitting on the head? What would lead to that? I don't know. That? What can you imagine would what lead you, to what? garroting or, or hitting on the head? What can you imagine? I can't imagine. I want you to look at me and tell me what you think happened. That's how I look you right in the eye. I think you're good for this. I think that's what the evidence suggests. Steve uh, Thomas, you are so... So in other words, she killed her daughter in a rage over the bedwetting and then garroted her. Yeah, th this is interesting hearing this theory uh, because, again, it's not consistent with uh, forensic experts that worked with the police department, the law enforcement theory. in this case. Right. I disagree. Totally disagree. John Bonet... In fact, the, the, the autopsy report says this. John Bonet died of strangulation that wow so a lot to unpack there my first takeaway is the tone of patsy throughout it just stuck out to me immediately the way she's so matter of fact about the way she says i want to hear how you think i murder my daughter throughout this entire interview we hear the ramses with a snarky tone even at times laughing at detective thomas now keep in mind that they so-called went on this show to spread the word that their daughter's killer is still out there and instead, they get into a verbal war of words instead of working together with the police. They're on Larry King debating them. 
Former Detective Thomas had theorized that Patsy murdered John Bonet in a rage about the bedwetting that had occurred often by John Bonet in the Ramsey home. Side note, frequent bedwetting can be a sign of sexual assault, which the reports also say, unfortunately, that was present with John Bonet's body, so there's that layer to it. He theorized that Patsy hit John Bonet and killed her, enlisting John to help her cover it up. The DNA has since come out to exclude the Ramseys from being responsible for the murder itself, but about that. I'll say this, it took the police eight hours to find this child's body. In those eight hours, there were many people inside of the house moving about freely, and it's a big house, so police couldn't be everywhere at once. This would mean anyone in the house would be free to tamper with the evidence if they knew it was there, or even free to plant evidence. This is the entire reason that police close off crime scenes and get everyone away from the scene. I ask you again, how wasn't this crime scene closed off? I'm not law enforcement, I'm just your regular everyday guy, and even I would think to close off the scene. I mean, even in the movies, the cops close off the scene. Come on. It's a thing. Nonetheless, despite DNA supposedly clearing them, that would not in theory exclude them from being conspirators or accessories to this crime, especially if they had knowledge of the ongoings that led to her death. Now back to that snippet. There's a part towards the end where John begins to say, Loud and confidently, I might add, he goes, John Bonet died of, or rather, the autopsy showed she died of strangulation. That Aaron's speech really stuck out to me. Almost like he realized mid-sentence to correct himself and did just that. Almost like he maybe knew what had happened, hence he knew the cause of death without an actual autopsy report. It is worth noting there's no mention of Burke Ramsey in these interviews, but we will get to those theories later on. Just a reminder, the Ramseys would shed no tears for the duration of these interviews. They stay eerily calculated throughout and much on the defensive as they weave and wind their way throughout the accusations. They often counter Steve Thomas's allegations with questions of their own. They seem well coached in terms of the law and what to say and not to say. John seems to take the overall leading in fielding Thomas's questions. He's careful with every word. But when Patsy interjects... I sense a nervousness throughout the duration of the interview for her. It almost seemed like she was treating it like an audition or something like that. She was talking what she thought was elegantly, but it was more inappropriate for the type of interview they're supposed to be having. And I just can't see somebody who's missing their daughter and wants to find the killer of their daughter going on Larry King to debate. How about go to the police office with or without your lawyers and figure out what actually happened instead of being on the defensive. But again, they've never been proven guilty in a court of law, so there's that. I want to share a few other clips that stuck out to me in particular. We can react to those, and then I want to get into some of those theories of how John Bonet potentially died. I, of course, have a theory of my own, and we'll get into that as well. Now back to the Ramseys who are debating with Detective Steve Thomas, again, on Larry King Live. Where am I supposed to have learned how theory. to make this garrote? Uh, John calls it a very uh, skilled instrument of some sort. It was, you admit now, do you not, that it was your paintbrush that was used? Do you admit that? I don't know. Steve, uh, well, no, I care. Let, let her answer the question, if John. the perpetrator was in our home, he your, had your paintbrush. access... The kidnapper who forgot his ransom note? Steve, whoa, the kidnapper who forgot his van and all his tools of the instruments? That. You know what? This is it. We're not going to solve this tonight. And I refuse to, to have a Jerry Springer type exchange no, with not. this man. It's not. You know, this has subverted justice in this country. Like.
So my initial feedback is shock at the humor being used by Patsy throughout this exchange. This entire clip I chose, she's actually smiling through this. At the very least, I would say it's jarring that she's freely using humor in such a capacity. Now let's get to the best part. The theories of John Benet Ramsey's killing. First, we obviously have the Ramseys, who I've put them under a microscope for the duration of this podcast. I've done just that because of their behavior that I witnessed. It seems they are quite detached from the slaying of their daughter. I don't see tears. I don't see real emotion. I see people going through the motions, trying to clear their name and protect their reputation rather than trying to find the murderer of their daughter. But again, that's my opinion. Keep in mind that all the Ramseys were clear based on DNA evidence, but the DNA evidence in this case has an asterisk next to it due to the improper conduct in terms of the scene not being closed down. And like I said before, this means people were in the house, moving about freely, able to contaminate or even tamper with the evidence easily. The FBI had offered to lend a hand to the department in the search for the killer, but were denied based on something referred to as police pride. But that's a whole different story. The fact is, the DNA cannot be trusted in this case. So especially according to the mainstream media at the time, it was either Patsy or John who committed this heinous crime. Now second in the list of suspects, we have Burke Ramsey. He was 9 years old at the time. He was John Bonet's 9-year-old brother. People had theorized that the night before, John Bonet had gone downstairs to have a snack of pineapple, which was on the counter when police arrived, which she had often, and that's when Burke came downstairs. The theory states that a fight ensued, commencing with Burke, hitting John Bonet in the back of the head with a flashlight. Afterwards, the Ramseys covered it up so they could protect their son, rather than have him go away for the slaying of his younger sister. Burke would go on to do an interview on Dr. Phil. Again, I am no behavioralist, but his general demeanor during the interview points to someone who's been through tremendous trauma. He smiles often and uses a tone of joy throughout, although he is talking about the slaying of his younger sister. Many pointed to him because of interviews he had done with police following the homicide. He wasn't too emotional about John Bonet's passing and would draw pictures of just him and his two parents leaving out John Bonet. Nonetheless, his DNA does not match the DNA found on his sister. I personally do not believe he's the one responsible. He seems like someone who is deeply troubled, possibly because of things that both him and his sister went through as children. Now, one theory I would like to personally exclude is the random intruder theory. The Ramseys and other investigators have theorized for years that a random intruder gained access through a basement window and perpetrated these crimes. Have you ever heard of somebody writing a ransom note while at the kidnapping scene? That combined with multiple rough drafts would point out to me that this killer was in no rush. In fact, they went into John's desk to find the paper and on top of his desk for the pen. They seemed to know the house pretty well, or at least supposedly had spent a lot of time there during the killing. Analysis experts would also point out that the person who climbed through the window would have to be 4'11 or shorter in stature. So there's the theory. A child snuck into the Ramsey's house and perpetrated this sick and brutal slaying. That's really what they want people to think. Come on, man. There are theories that someone close to the family is responsible. I've heard scenarios where Fleet White was behind it, or even the Santa Claus from the Christmas party John Bonet had been to. But it wouldn't make sense. They would have had to crawl through that small basement window. But what about the sexual assault that had been present during the autopsy? Experts say it had been going on for years before the murder. That's when it gets deeper than you could ever imagine. Weird coincidences actually link the Ramsey family and Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. First, they use the same law firm. In Denver, there's a firm by the name of Haddon, Morgan, and Foreman. There is no evidence they were represented by the same actual lawyer, 
but to have the same firm is a little bit of a coincidence. Then comes the picture of John Bonet, seemingly with Ghislaine Maxwell in the background. It's said to be one of the last photos of John Bonet alive. I could not confirm or deny that through my research. It's also impossible to confirm without any doubt that it is Ghislaine Maxwell in the picture, but I'll tell you one thing, if that's not her, then it's her twin sister. To me, it looks a little bit too similar to her not to be her, but I can't say that that's a fact. But let's just say it was her for the sake of hypotheticals. What if her and Epstein were targeting one of the most well-known child pageant queens as their target? My mind certainly struggled with this theory because it seemed far-fetched even with the picture. But this is when it gets even weirder. Through posting my conspiracy videos on TikTok, I was contacted by a fellow conspiracy page. I'm Between the Lies podcast and her page is actually at find out, no spaces, no numbers on TikTok. She urged me to look into John Ramsey's dad. This is where it got way too coincidental for me. James J. Dudley Ramsey was head of aeronautics for multiple states. In the 1970s, he was head of Michigan Aeronautics. These people helped to coordinate flights, and basically, as far as Michigan goes, he would have had knowledge of most of the flights through it, or at least have access to that information. This brings us to an island right off Charlevoix that would be in Michigan. It was purchased in 1959 by a man by the name of Frank Sheldon. Although we purchased the island with hopes for it materializing into a getaway for aviation enthusiasts, it quickly and swiftly got darker than anybody could ever imagine. North Fox Island was advertised as a getaway for children with issues. These included reading problems, emotional problems, or helping them get up to speed with physical fitness. It ran until 1976 when a boy came forward and told his parents what had actually been going on there. Frank Sheldon was a pedophile using the island as a front to help young boys. He was actually abusing them on camera and then distributing the materials. Politicians and people of great wealth would also fly to the island to partake. So John Ramsey's father, being head of aeronautics in Michigan at the time, you would think that he would have to know about the flights going to and from North Fox Island or at least have access to that information. He being head of aeronautics also would be a fan of aviation. Therefore, we can reasonably expect that he may have been a friend or associate of Frank Sheldon. Frank Sheldon was at least on his radar. That's what I'm getting at. So North Fox Island was Epstein Island before Epstein Island. What if John Ramsey's dad had been involved in child trafficking and passed it down to his son? Could the Ramseys really be that sinister? It would explain the reports of sexual abuse on John Bonet. It would give credence to the Maxwell and Epstein connections. John Ramsey actually resided in Sheravoy before he headed to Denver, and apparently does so now. Could this be part of the Ramsey family business? This may be all speculation, but you know what they say about coincidences. There can only be so many for you start to say, wow, maybe it's not a coincidence after all. It's like those boards that detectives have on their wall with strings, joining different topics and different people, all to make their case and conclusion. Could these things all be connected? Now the final theory we will go over is the pedophile cult theory. This theory again is all speculation, so I'm in no way claiming it to be true or 100% fact. I just want to make that abundantly clear. This theory would say the Ramses were letting their children get assaulted, paying their dues in terms of a satanic cult they were a part of. The theory continues saying that the night John Bonet passed, she was either a sacrifice or simply somebody took it too far. The Ramses panicked and then came up with the ransom note as well as their side of the story they basically stuck to all along. We may never know for sure, but I just pray that we do find the answers in my lifetime. 
There are way too many coincidences for me and my personal opinion. The Ramsey's cold, detached interviews, talking to lawyers months before police, the way Burke was later in life in his Dr. Phil interview. For now, I guess there are way more questions than answers. And it doesn't seem like this case is being looked into any further, although people do claim that it is. But thank you guys for the listen. I'm simply presenting what I found and giving my feedback as always. Thank you for tuning in to the Between the Lies podcast, guys. Until next time, thanks again.